Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Hello once again. This is the April 5th, 2019 edition of the Out of the Question podcast. I'm Andrea Schwartz, and I'm joined by the co-host of this podcast, Reverend Steve Macias. Good to be here with you, Andrea. The question that's being posed by us is, how do we differentiate between allies and enemies? And I should be clear, we're not talking about political allies or political enemies. Specifically, we're talking about those who we, in a broad sense, would say are on the same side of a particular issue. And yet there seems to be two contradictory remarks by Jesus that from when I first encountered them, I thought, well, this isn't very clear. He seems to be saying the exact opposite. So the question behind the question of how do we differentiate between allies and enemies is how do we reconcile Jesus's words in Matthew twelve thirty, where he said, he that is not with me is against me. And then in Luke 9, verse 50, he that is not against us is for us. We're really having this discussion, not for the first time, because a lot of things we talk about on this, on this podcast are hot button religious or political ideas. And so people draw very strong lines in the sand, as you should on a lot of issues. And as Christian Reconstructionists, we should say that God's law certainly has a standard. And as Rush Dooney and Dr. Bonson were, uh, were wont to say very often, there is really no neutrality philosophically. But to get to our goals, there is a, a war waging amongst folks on pragmatism versus idealism or truth versus success. You know, there's always this kind of tension that exists of how do we get to our goals while bringing other people along with us? We all recognize to some extent that we can't do kingdom work on our own. We have to bring the entire body of Christ. It requires churches, families, all the institutions have to work together to get to where we want to be. So how do we reconcile that with uh, Christ's words, of course, of talking about this division that exists? If you are for Christ or if you are not against Christ, how do we take those words down and make sense of them? And I think it really begins with a conversation about what is the goal of, of Christ's kingdom and how it fleshes itself out in our world. Now, I know, Andrea, you have some great examples you're going to get to here in a few seconds, but... Looking at these texts, we have to first make the assumption on good faith that Jesus never contradicts himself. And so we have to untangle his words in a way that are both logically consistent and also non-contradictory. Jesus can't contradict himself. So if we think there's a contradiction, the error is on us, not on our Lord in the scriptures. Right? Wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely. And that's why I said that seems to be a seeming contradiction. But if you look closely, which I'm sure you're going to do for us, there really is no contradiction. 
And we first have to begin with uh, the context of what's happening here in both gospel accounts. Uh, we have on, on one circumstance, folks who are casting out demons using Jesus's name. And I'm sure we can all uh, think of examples where people are doing works in Jesus's name. And maybe in our modern examples, they're doing activities or supporting ministries. And if we were to translate this into, say, modern activities, maybe they're not part of our uh, particular denomination or our particular framework of thinking, but they are pushing forward the crown rights or the goals of Jesus. It's interesting, though, that those who are not against Jesus, right, those ones who are, are claiming his name are claiming the power and authority of Jesus. And these disciples come to Jesus, and he says to them, their instruction is, forbid them not. So there is, in one sense, when Jesus is talking about using his name to further his goals, to accomplish his things, forbid people not from making strides for the kingdom in his name, even if that does not match exactly how you think it should be done. There are so many examples in the New Testament of the disciples coming to Jesus and imposing their own views of how the kingdom should be run, right? How Jesus Incorporated should be managed and put forward. And Jesus continually reminds, whether it's the Sons of Thunder or St. Peter, that things have to be done in a way that doesn't really make sense in this world. And that's how it makes uh, kind of this parallel with the other scripture of that those who are not for me, meaning for Christ's standard, for Christ's way of doing things, are against him. And you can kind of see how these two phrases fit together and, and fill in the pieces that we might think are contradictory. Because what Christ is actually saying in the verse from St. Matthew is he is instructing his disciples that if they don't follow his way of doing things, then they are actively going against him. Whereas the verse in St. Luke is reminding them that their way and their standard of judging the work of the kingdom is not good enough. And that those who come along Jesus's way are actually fulfilling the works of the kingdom. Interestingly enough, we are talking pronouns. You know, pronouns are a big thing today. You can't mispronoun someone by, you know, using the wrong pronoun. But the pronoun here in the Matthew piece or the Matthew reference is me. Whereas in the Luke reference, it's us. Mm. And so I think Jesus is saying, don't set yourself up as the standard of orthodoxy. Go back to the scripture, go back to my word and make sure you're not eliminating someone and their efforts because you don't particularly like them or think that's the best way to do something. Think of, of how the other examples of the Jesus' disciples are, are much like our own lives. Uh, Jesus' disciples wanted to be at his right and left hand in the kingdom. And a lot of us will create our own ministries, our own pet projects, our own theological constructs. And we want our Lord to you know, lift those up, whatever meager things we made, and say, this is the way things should be done. And part of the humbling experience of Christians, I know in my own uh, Christian life, is that sometimes we have to realize that the way we're doing things uh, is not always the way Christ wants them to be done. 
Right. We're not the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And uh, in my previous <laughs> ministry uh, version, I was in pro-life ministry, and I spent uh, close to five years doing full-time pro-life ministry for a variety of different ministries. And I quickly discovered uh, and began to, to recite a mantra that I learned about all the different facets of pro-life ministry. You know, for example, uh, I, I have done graphic displays. I have done genocide displays where it compares abortion to the Holocaust or to slavery. I've done the scientific approach where you've tried to argue from embryology. I've done all those different kinds of pro-life ministries. And I've done it alongside Roman Catholics, Orthodox Christians, alongside Evangelicals, Baptists, and there have been people who are completely secular who have done pro-life work alongside me. And over the years, I have waned from a, a kind of a, a hypercritical spirit. You know, when I was a, a new young Calvinist, I was very uh, critical of the non-Calvinists who were doing work. You know, I would see the, the Catholics out there doing their rosary or I would see the folks doing Pregnancy Resource Center who wouldn't come out and do sidewalk counseling. And I had my own standard of what everybody should be doing. And surprisingly enough, it looked exactly like what I was doing. You know, I had projected what I was doing for the pro-life ministry is what everybody else should be doing. And the only person worse than the person who wasn't doing my type of ministry was the person who was doing nothing. But uh, I had a pastor uh, in Sacramento. His name is John Stoos. And he reminded me and, and kind of humbled me that there are different ways that the body of Christ attacks the, the pro-life issue. And for most of my uh, career, I was reminded over and over again that I like what the Roman Catholics or I like what the pregnancy resource centers or I like what the abolitionists are doing better than what the people who are apathetic are not doing. It was better for them to do something to further this kingdom right? It was better for them to be doing good works in Christ's name for Christ's goals rather than being against his kingdom. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of that too. Well, most recently, because there's uh, the movie Unplanned came out last week or the week before, I guess. And you have people who say, go see it, go see it. Then you have other people going, don't go see it and all sorts of things. But you can understand why somebody who is in favor of abortion might say, don't go see it, but not somebody who wants to see abortion end. And for just kind of for grins, I decided to rework the passage in Luke and have it go something like this. Master, we saw a pro-life movie that wasn't strong enough in proclaiming your word, and we encouraged other people not to go see it. Or... Master, we saw pro-life people telling women they were murderers because they aborted their children, and we told them to stop doing that. Well, in each case, different approaches, but in each case, are the people involved endeavoring to see the murder of unborn children end? I think we'd have to say absolutely. Absolutely. And what's really missing, uh, again, is the idea that there are different ways of approaching each situation. I remember sitting in a, a boardroom on one of these early pro-life meetings and 
I was despairing that our particular ministry wasn't doing very well in fundraising. And I blamed it. I said, all the money's going towards stuff that's not going to stop abortion. And I looked at all the different other pro-life resources and I said, why are we wasting so much money on pregnancy tests or this particular part of the pregnancy center or mobile pregnancy centers and not putting all of our efforts into educating people about how unthinkable abortion should be. And I was very much in the mind of what you are probably describing here, folks who would be critical of the unplanned movie or Abby Johnson's ministry. And I, I was very emotionally charged that my ministry was the best way to do ministry. <laughs> and uh, an older man who had been in the pro-life ministry for probably 40 years since the early 70s took me to the side and he said, Steve, let's say abortion was overturned by Roe v. Wade tomorrow. He said, uh, what happens to your ministry? And he got me to think about that there are different uh, challenges that are being faced here. It's not just an intellectual one. There is uh, a battle for how to treat the family. There's a battle for how to treat women. There's a battle for what these pregnancy resource centers mean and what they translate about how we feel about women. And so the pro-life narrative requires us to work at it from several different angles. And when we get lopsided and start casting bombs at one particular effort or attack, we're actually you know, removing the, the very foundation we're, we're arguing from. And you have to not remove people from their context. In the case of this movie Unplanned about a woman who herself had had a couple of abortions and then rose up the ranks in Planned Parenthood and was a very successful director of a clinic, no doubt every time she walked into her clinic and there was a group of people who were praying quietly, and then there was another group of people potentially with graphic displays. She was bothered by the graphic displays. Now, as somebody who was performing abortions or at least selling abortions, that could have been the beginning of her conscience being pricked because she wasn't necessarily upset that somebody had a sign. She didn't like what it was showing as a friend of mine used to say when he used to debate on college campuses that the pro-abortion side would say, tell them they can't use pictures. And he would always say, well, the reason they don't want us to use pictures, because if they used pictures, they'd be the same pictures, right? So that's why they don't want us to use the pictures. The point is, this particular person had particular preference, and she's thinking, people like me probably are not going to be changed by seeing what an abortion actually looks like. However, I'm sure that we could find people who actually were changed when they saw the picture or when they heard the term murderer. And so who are we to say what God is going to use to change the hearts of people? It's not like our sign or our particular orientation is what changes people. It's what the Holy Spirit does that changes people. That's right. And, you know, there's just beyond that particular question, I think is important. What you said of who are we to decide what will change somebody's heart? You know, I have a, a very uh, strange conversion experience where the place I got saved is very different than the church I'm in now. Uh, I got saved at an altar call with rock bands and all this fun stuff. And it caused me to really focus on that this work must really be 
uh, the work of the Holy Spirit and not the, the cunning or the devices or the wisdom of man. And that's really the, the error or the, the sin that we are very prone to in this type of ministry is that we might get so haughty or so filled with our own pride that we have no room for the Holy Spirit to be working through these other people. What a remarkable story is Abby Johnson and the hundreds of people who worked in Planned Parenthoods who have been called out of that work into pro-life ministry. How many children have no doubt been saved by her story long before Unplanned hit the theaters, long before her book was ever published, long before, you know, 40 Days for Life started using her and, and her doing speaking events. The fact that the Holy Spirit is working through her is what Jesus is talking about in this idea of who he who is not uh, against me is for me. It's going back to the other principles that Jesus gives us that no man can really serve to masters. Christ is saying that in reality, uh, the strong man of this world, that is Satan, is being destroyed. He is in the ropes and Christ is moving forward. And so we who are monergistic, believing in the sovereignty of God, look to Jesus and the work that's being done, even by weak or broken or incorrect vessels, like uh, maybe some people would perceive Abby Johnson to be. That's the power of God, that even through something that is not 100% in agreement with us philosophically or ideologically or theologically, that's the power of God that the Holy Spirit works through these broken things. And if we're honest, and we look back at our own lives and our own efforts, we too are not perfect or 100% theologically accurate. And so God yet works through us. Exactly. People are in process, and not everybody ends up at the same place. But it's God's election that brings us into his family, not how we score on a theology test. And I think that there is a tendency, especially in evangelicalism, when you have a convert who has a very dark past, people celebrate. And, you know, Jesus said you should when the lost, you know, the heaven um, rejoices when one of the lost sheep is found. But I think we get into the drama of it. And I remember having an interesting conversion experience myself and having given testimony at churches, having people come up and say, I wish I had an exciting testimony like yours. Well, I would bet you if somebody went up to Abby Johnson and said, I wish I had an exciting conversion experience like yours, she would say, you do? You really want to have 22,000 lives taken that you had something to do with? So I'm sure that when you first come to the realization that what I'm doing is wrong, and then people want to elevate you very quickly before you have sound theological underpinnings or even a chance to kind of figure out what's going on, you may say and do things which later on when you get more mature and you're more seasoned, you'd say, I would never have said that, or I don't even think that anymore. But we got to be patient with the fact that here's somebody who it's, it's normal because, you know, when Paul the Apostle came to terms with that he had been killing and arresting Christians, he became very fervent for what it is God had called him to do. So why not say, she's got some growing to do, or I've got some growing to do, or he's got some growing to do. 
but realize that they're going in the direction that's a positive one. Even if people decide we're not going to have abortions or do abortions anymore and they never come to Christ, people are not being murdered. That's the point. The point isn't, well, who got them not to murder? Right, right. The who's who got the credit or the glory? Um, yeah, and that's really what our our mantra was in the Reformation, right? Soli Deo Gloria. <laughs> but I think that goes back to a bigger point. If we're talking about the pro life movement and the historical context of it, it's really difficult to put a lot of of faith in the criticisms of Abby Johnson. I know I've read a couple of different blog posts about the unplanned movie, and some people are unhappy with the the quality of the movie. Some people are happy, unhappy with the violence in it because it does show the reality of abortion. Some people think that uh, it mischaracterizes the abortion industry as being for profit, which I think is true. It, it is a for profit industry. Uh, but some of the criticisms that are, I think are disingenuous are criticisms of Abby Johnson because she converted to Roman Catholicism. And while we recognize that, that, uh, our faith is significantly different in a lot of key and fundamental areas. In the pro-life battle, uh, the relationship between Roman Catholicism and the battle against abortion is, is pretty plain. Even before Protestants got on board fighting this, Roman Catholics were establishing the beachhead. Uh, it wasn't until uh, Dr. Schaefer and his movie with... Uh, uh, C. Everett Koop, the book, Whatever Happened to the Human Race. It wasn't until years later that men like uh, like Dr. Francis Schaeffer were able to inspire Protestants to even come out to do these efforts. And it wasn't even later, until years later after that, that we got to see Operation Rescue. And so for us to cast aspersions on people doing pro-life work only because they're Roman Catholic while the history shows Roman Catholics were the foundation of the battle against abortion, I think is just simply not fair. And we're not saying give up orthodoxy. Some of the criticism on what she stands for is she's against murder. And so she extrapolates that to say, therefore, we shouldn't have a death penalty. Well, rather than getting all up in arms, I, I bet you that there are most people, if you act, ask them honestly, who attend churches on a regular basis, what do you think of the death penalty? They might think, well, it's a personal preference. They wouldn't be able to say or were likely to say, well, let's go back to God's law and find out what he has to say on it, right? But people, I think, want to have everybody be at the same place they're at. And you know, however long you've been a believer, you've grown over that time. So you can extend grace to people as opposed to giving up an orthodox position. They're not mutually exclusive. That's right. I think that the, the orthodoxy of a person doesn't really undermine the kind of moral courage that something like Unplanned shows. We should recognize and encourage leaders in the corporate industries in our culture that if they leave their terrible careers we will praise them for it right mm -hmm. <laughs> i mean what does it say about a culture that we on one hand will criticize them for doing evil things and then when they leave we'll also criticize them for not being good enough when they left right <laughs> there's there's kind of a a lose-lose in our perception of people 
we need to recognize in stories like like Abby Johnson Unplanned that there is actual moral courage required to make a decision that takes away from your financial bottom line, that affects your personal relationships, that affects your reputation and your name, that those efforts, although they may be imperfect, do matter. And I think that movies like Unplanned send a message, and especially Christians who participate, support, uh, patronize movies and uh, events like this, they're sending a message that the what was once called the silent majority or the moral majority or the Christian uh, silent Christian groups that we will recognize leaders in our community who stand for what's right. But if we, as it says in, in Galatians bite and devour one another, then what consequences somebody faces for making the right morally courageous decision are undermined because Christians don't recognize any good efforts anyway. You know, one of the criticisms that's levied against her is that when she um, does a speaking engagement, she makes a lot of money. Well, as opposed to who? When any person is usually a keynote speaker or is, uh, whether it's in a Christian conference or whatever, they've got expenses, they've got things they have to deal with. So the fact that she makes money when she speaks doesn't dissuade me from thinking that I, I, I shouldn't think she's a good person. People need money to live. And I'm more concerned and appreciative of the fact that this movie, whether you liked the acting, whether you thought the depictions were all the way they should be of abortion workers and whatnot, nobody seems to be arguing that the chemical abortion, the surgical abortion, or the aftermath when people have experienced either one. Nobody's saying that's not accurate and it's on the big screen and people are going to watch it and there'll be images they won't forget. So let's praise God that maybe a movie that wasn't award nominee worthy from a directorial or casting or a screenplay showed something that people have been trying to get other people to see for a very long time. That's right. Uh, there's a another pro-life group um, that's often controversial for good reasons called Operation Rescue. And I'd, I've done events with them and done, a, done different activism with them. And they're a group I definitely admire and respect. And their director, uh, Mr. Troy Newman, one time I was sitting with him. We were, I think, in Venice Beach doing pro-life ministry. And we we're finishing up the day and we're talking about different tactics and I'm telling him about how we can integrate presuppositional apologetics into pro-life ministry and how much, you know, Dr. Rush Judy can contribute to our, you know, theological basis against abortion. And he simply looked to me and he said, that's all great. We need to be, keep doing that work. We need people writing those books, people, you know, filling out those articles. But he said, I really hate it though, that when people latch on to too much information when they get so caught up in all of those weeds that it makes them into armchair theologians, right? He, he, and I've, I've heard Russian make similar remarks that folks get so caught up in getting the right theology that they mistake their doctrinal work with actually doing things. And you see this over and over again on Facebook uh, the, the new form of virtue signaling on the right 
is criticizing somebody for not being theologically 100% on their activism. And somehow this kind of discernment blogging or uh, just a, a, a theological virtue signaling counts as kingdom work. And I think that if our Lord was looking at all of these Facebook discussions about whether or not uh, Abby Johnson or, or Unplanned is good enough for us to support, he would probably say something similar to what he said to his disciples of forbid them not, right? Look right. at what they're doing. Forbid them not for look how many more people they are reaching. So what we need to do as reconstructionists, as Christians, who maybe recognize the different errors or the shortfalls or the places where these aren't matching up with what would be most effective, is we need to recognize that those things that the, the unplanned people are planting are now fruit and, and uh, things for us to go and gather and harvest. Much like I would say to folks who want to criticize our Baptist or our evangelical brethren and their seeker service worship, they're raising up fruit for you to go and harvest for your, your churches. And I know many of us, myself included, are the result of we got saved, we made a prayer in an evangelical church, and then somebody from the Reformed Reconstruction Circle came, swooped us up, and brought us to and through maturity. That's what the opportunity here is today. Rather than tearing down the folks who are working with us to end abortion, we need to go find these new people who have been activated, inspired, converted, uh, questioning now the reality of abortion. We need to lift them up and say, hey, there's a whole ministry and there are tons of roles for you to fill in furthering this cause. Now that you have been introduced, the role of those of us who think our techniques and methods are better and more effective is to go gather those people, train, equip, and send. Exactly. And what really um, I think is pertinent here, uh, you know, I teach biblical law classes to women online on a weekly basis. And one group, the, the section that we were working on is in one of the appendices. I've been working with this group now for three years, and we're getting to the end of the book of Institutes Volume 1. But the name of the section was called The Law and the Ban, B-A-N. And Rajduni is discussing the fact that God can issue a ban, a sentence of death that's going to be irrevocable. And that he makes the point that the ban can only be issued by God. So it's not for men to decide who is going to be banned, who is not going to be associated with. That's God's decision. But I'd like to read a couple of paragraphs because I think it brings to light what we're talking about. He says, the ban could be issued only by God, not by man. By the ban, God declared a people to be outside the law and under sentence of death. The ban is the reverse of communion, and it declares the end of communion with God and man. The banned people are given over to death as their judgment. Communion and community can exist where there are strong personal differences and enmity. A good example of this. Today, the finest example is still the peasant who has no feelings but simply belongs to his community. 
as contrasted with the Sidoyen, I guess that would be someone who lives in the city, invented in the 18th century. Even peasants who fight or engage in lawsuits remain neighbors and brothers. A peasant in the eastern Netherlands who has a mortal enemy in the village nevertheless knows that on market days he is obliged to greet his foe and walk up and down with him once when the peasant community of the whole district is gathered in the country town, thus demonstrating to the eyes of strangers the fellowship of the village. The point in such a custom is this. Disagreement exists. Lawsuits are in process. But such differences are a part of life in a community and a form of community. Thus, differences are inescapable in every marriage with godly people, the differences serve to increase the areas of communion and agreement by bringing problems to the surface for settlement. A community requires dissension and disagreement in order to have progress. The ban instead means the end of community. It indicates a situation beyond disagreement. It means that the curse has taken over. And that's the end of the quote. So we should not be guilty of banning other people's efforts. We need to do our version of walking around the marketplace hand in hand saying, yeah, we've got our disagreements, but we're heading in the same direction. Yeah, and the best place to see where that kind of difference creating a better product is really in your marriage, right? He talks about the city versus the country. Uh, my family, my wife and I, are very much just like that. I was raised in the city. My wife was wa- raised in the country. I always went to a government school. She was homeschooled. And so there are lots of places where we have uh, contradictory uh, histories. And and so the, there are differences on how we've come to perceive things. And part of us becoming one flesh is working through those conflicts. And through working through those conflicts, we become closer and more intimate through there. And that's really what happens in all human relationships. The more separate we are and the more we work through those those challenges and struggles, the more our bonds become meaningful, right? Those relationships that are born out of loving your enemy are much more powerful than those uh, which are born out of people who already agree with you, right? The commandment to to love your neighbor would be really easy if you only had to love your neighbor when they agreed with you, right? (laughs) The commandment to uh, honor your parents would only, would be really easy if your parents were always uh, telling you things that you agreed with. The commandment to submit to your elders and uh, to belong and, and serve in a church would be really easy if it only meant when those elders agreed 100% with you. But our Lord has this expectation that we'll be in communities where we'll have strife and we'll have dissension and we'll have conflict. And part of his plan for your spiritual growth, maturity, and humility is that you will be in situations where even when you know deep down or you feel deep down that you are 100% right, uh, you're going to be required to show a deference to those who God has put in authority over you. And we've talked about that in 
government and families and, and different situations. Of course, there are limits and safeguards there, but there are still situations where you actually have to love somebody who is truly an enemy. And sometimes we make enemies out of people who are just one or two degrees different from us theologically or philosophically. Right. So we're, we're not saying give up the law. As a matter of fact, the ability to differentiate between ally and enemy will have everything to do with how does this measure up against the law of God. And then even when we're 100% sure that, as you said, that our position is right, 1 Corinthians 13 comes in. We still have to be patient. We still have to be kind. We still have to be long-suffering. And we still have to not be seeking our own. And so it all really ties in together. And as, as we talked earlier, Jesus is not contradicting himself. He's saying, follow me and um, just don't confuse you with me because <laughs> it's not the same thing. And that's right. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, the, the portion in St. Luke, just a few verses ahead, it's talking about uh, receiving a child in my name. And Christ goes at great uh, length to emphasize that whoever receives a child in his name receives Christ. And I think there's a parallel here uh, with us and maybe not childlikeness in the terms of age, but childlikeness in terms of maybe maturity or development. Uh, us as as Christians who are versed in biblical law, understand our theology and doctrines, we have to be willing to accept and to welcome those who may not be there yet, right? Uh, we can't hate people for being where we were just three, four, five, maybe 10 years ago. We have to recognize that there was a time when we were the place of that child and in the pro-life discussion and in lots of political and religious discussions, the difference between your position and their position is a book study, is some time in discipleship, is time for them to experience real-life uh, marriage or job difficulties, and for them to grow to be more like you. And they won't be able to experience what you have to teach or to show them if we're creating these artificial barriers and saying, Stop doing whatever you're doing. You're the enemy of God if you do that particular action. And you're making me think of the fact that back in 19, I guess it was 86, when my husband and I actually first met uh, Dr. Rushduni and his wife after having read a couple of his books, he was so patient with us. My husband and I look back and we say, in a lot of ways, we were idiots. You know, we thought we knew everything there was. We were sure that our experience, that, you know, the things we had done were so terrible compared to everyone else. And, you know, the expression wasn't there at the time, but Rush was kind of chill. He was sort of like he would answer our questions. And there were times where there were parts of the Bible that really bothered me. And I'd get really agitated. And he would do his version of, you know, calm down. <laughs> This has been the word of God for a very long time, and there are other people who have already looked it over. And I laugh now because when I now am in positions of mentoring or whatever, there are people who I think that must have been what I was like. But the difference is when you see people who are hungry and thirsty and they're not trying to get away with things. They just want to know. And sometimes they're like the toddler who hasn't quite got walking down well. But when you see the spirit of God in someone, 
then you be patient, then you be kind, and you walk alongside them and recognize that they will grow if they have that hunger and thirst. That's right. That's right. And so there is probably already somebody in your sphere of influence who's like that, who's hungry or thirsty. And uh, maybe this podcast is a reminder for ways to you, ways for you to think of in investing or uh, mentoring somebody else. Those of you who are been a, a Chalcedon supporter for, for many years, who have been digesting Rushduni's work, it's really your responsibility now to to pass on this knowledge and, and this information to the next generation through uh, through ministry and discipleship. I, I, I think of not just uh, the pro-life ministry, but of how much of the message of Christian Reconstruction depends on folks reclaiming the other areas of life, whether it's the family, the marriage, uh, our businesses, the Christian school, all of these areas uh, are not just things that can be fought intellectually that we need to keep discussing and, and wearing out on Facebook, but they're opportunities for us to disciple and instruct and train and impart wisdom and experience to the next generation. And that's really, I think, the heart of what Christ is, is getting at. We, we know the strong man is bound. We know we can't serve two masters. How are we going to take what is already existing, growing up in this land of harvest here in the year 2019, and transform this little, even, even the stuff from the unplanned movie, even, even the things from the Roman Catholics, even their little bit of, of misguided effort, how are we going to transform their steps in the right direction to castles and mountains and uh, outposts for the kingdom today? And that's really our challenge. Our challenge is not to set everybody on the right ideological pedestal, but to set them on the right path towards establishing Christ's kingdom here on earth. Exactly. All right. Well, let me ask you this before we go. Any recommendations you would like to make in terms of how believers can get along with each other as they're pursuing the kingdom of God? Well, I think that uh, if you read Dr. Francis Schaeffer's uh, book, how, how Shall We Then Live?, and you get a better picture of how different eras of Christendom have operated, you know, whether it was the period of, of the Reformation or, or different groups of uh, 17th or 18th century Christians, how they were able to use such small minorities of people to affect a great change, not by demanding everybody to think and act like them, but by riding the, the cultural and political tides in a way that embraced their common Christian heritage, I think that would be very helpful. Uh, another book that I think would be helpful on this idea of finding good in something that's not perfect uh, would be Peter Lighthart's book, Defending Constantine. Uh, that would give you a great picture of how uh, Christians who are faithful uh, can expect great and empire-changing results through their faithfulness. And Constantine is uh, a man who's converted, kind of, <laughs> right? He, there's lots of foibles and shortcomings on his part. He's not baptized until near his deathbed. He's not the best Christian. He wants peace rather than you know, veracity and doctrine. But yet, through 
Constantine's effort, so much of Christendom is promulgated and spread and defended. And so that's really the perspective I would, I would take is go to, go to Schaefer, look at the modern history, go to Lightheart, look at Constantine, and what efforts, even flawed, Christ can use to really build his kingdom and expand his work. Okay, I would agree with that. And I would also say, if you don't feel confident in terms of your understanding of biblical law, that when you're criticizing or taking exception with something that someone does, do you have the reference in scripture that not only would support your point of view, but have you examined it sufficiently to say, are there other scriptures that apply here as well? So that we have law and grace not being opposites, but being things that operate together as they did. Calvary was the union of law and grace. Amen. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Join us again next time for the Out of the Question podcast. And you can always reach us at out of the question podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.